You may open your Bibles to John chapter 4. The second verse of Psalm 111 said, The works of the Lord are great, sought out of all them that have pleasure therein. And we're going to meet a man that had pleasure therein, and he wanted to seek out at what time the fever left his son. John chapter 4. Let me begin reading to you at verse 39 and read through the end of this chapter. John 4, 39. And many of the Samaritans of that city believed on him for the saying of the woman, which testified, he told me all that ever I did. So when the Samaritans were come unto him, they besought him that he would tarry with them. And he abode there two days. And many more believed because of his own word. And said unto the woman, Now we believe, not because of thy saying, for we have heard him ourselves, and know that this is indeed the Christ, the Savior of the world. Now after two days he departed thence and went into Galilee. For Jesus himself testified that a prophet hath no honor in his own country. Then when he was come into Galilee, the Galileans received him having seen all the things that he did at Jerusalem at the feast. For they also went unto the feast. So Jesus came again into Cana of Galilee, where he made the water wine. And there was a certain nobleman whose son was sick at Capernaum. When he heard that Jesus was come out of Judea into Galilee, he went unto him and besought him that he would come down and heal his son for he was at the point of death. Then said Jesus unto him, Except ye see signs and wonders, ye will not believe. The nobleman saith unto him, Sir, come down ere my child die. Jesus saith unto him, Go thy way, thy son liveth. And the man believed the word that Jesus had spoken unto him, and he went his way. And as he was now going down, His servants met him and told him, saying, Thy son liveth. Then inquired he of them the hour when he began to amend. And they said unto him, Yesterday at the seventh hour the fever left him. So the father knew that it was at the same hour in the which Jesus said unto him, Thy son liveth. And himself believed and his whole house. This is again the second miracle that Jesus did when he was come out of Judea into Galilee. Amen Amen and amen. amen. Let's spend a few minutes to review the Samaritan woman and the city of Sychar and its inhabitants and how they met the Lord Jesus Christ and were converted. John, in recording these events of our Lord and Savior on his way from Judea to Galilee, stopping at Jacob's well in Samaria, goes back and forth. He deals with the woman of Samaria. There's an interruption for his apostles. The woman of Samaria goes back into the city of Sychar. He has two lessons for his apostles. And then he comes back and in these verses summarizes what happened with the whole city based on his conversation with the woman. If you notice, John went back and forth from the woman to the disciples to the people and so forth. We haven't heard about the woman or the men of her city since verses 28 through 30 in this chapter. 
Because in verses 31 down through 38, we have two lessons that Jesus gave his apostles based on two metaphors, one metaphor being meat. Remember the lesson? I have meat that ye know not of, which should prompt to us, what is our meat? What is your meat? Your meat should be the will of God in your life. And he has written down his will for your life, so you have meat to do. And you should be aggressive about doing it. Just as the Lord Jesus Christ was, he wanted to tell his apostles in this metaphorical way that the food they had for him was not as important as doing the will of God. The second metaphor was harvest. And so we had in verses 35 through 38 a lesson based on harvest. It usually takes a long time to go from planting the seed to harvesting the final product. And the Lord Jesus Christ uses the four months here that was commonly spoken among them at this time. But he said, if you'll lift up your eyes and look, the fields are already white into harvest. There is no time to delay. There is no waiting right now. There's a crowd coming to see us, and we better be ready to deal with them. And so he pointed out the importance of personal evangelism and evangelism, ministerial evangelism for the apostles by that metaphor of a harvest. And so he told them to look and see it in verse 35. He encouraged them to do it in verse 36 because there's a good reward for ministers here and later and in the joy of seeing souls converted. The apostle Paul repeatedly said to the Thessalonians and Philippians in particular, ye are my crown, ye are my joy because converting those churches, converting the the members of those churches in those cities was a great joy to him. And so he was a re- they were a reward to him just by their conversion. Then in verse 37 and 38, the Lord Jesus Christ explains ministerial cooperation because they're going to need that. And it's best described in 1 Corinthians 3 where Paul said, I planted, Apollos watered, God gave the increase. Right. But when the increase came, both Apollos and Paul and Cephas and the Lord could rejoice in the church that was in Corinth. They were the Lord's people, but it was Paul that planted the seed there because the Lord told him in a dream, I have much people in this city. No man's going to hurt you. Just stay there and preach the gospel. It's found in Acts chapter 18. And so these verses, one soweth and another reapeth, describes what one minister may do well in advance of another. Now, there was a very close sowing and harvest here. Jesus did the sowing in one respect, and the apostles along with him were able to reap the product in just a few minutes. However, there had been more sowing than just Jesus with the city of Sychar, or they wouldn't have known about the Messiah looking for him and knowing that he was going to teach them all things. So there had been prophets and there had been scribes that had preached the word, recorded the word. Remember, the Samaritans did have the first five books of the Bible. And the first five books of the Bible, called the Samaritan Pentateuch, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy have prophecies of Jesus Christ the Messiah by the pen of Moses. So there was work done previously, and the apostles were just going to be able to reap what had been done because this city... This woman, these men, were looking for the Messiah. Well, here he was. And when you you have people looking for the Messiah, 
and the Messiah comes, or someone able to explain him to them, then you have a harvest. And so they had a harvest. But we're here at verse 39. And we want to compare this good result at Sychar to the city of the Gadarenes. I mentioned it to you last Lord's Day. Now, when Jesus healed the Gadarene, the men of that city wanted him to depart out of their coast. They did not want him there. Whether it was just because they resented something holy and good in their sight, whether they resented 2,000 lost swine in the ocean, whatever the cause, we don't care, we're not told, it doesn't matter. It's just a terrible choice on their part not to want the Lord Jesus Christ there. And what a difference was immediately drawn between the Gadarene and the Gadarene's friends, relatives, and neighbors. Because the Gadarene wanted to be with the Lord Jesus Christ. But the Lord told him to stay and to tell his friends and family what great things the Lord had done for him. Which is a great lesson if he's done great things for you that we ought to tell family and friends what great things he's done for us. Consider a particular verse of Proverbs that says it is a beautiful thing to have a reprover upon an obedient ear, a wise reprover upon an obedient ear. The wise reprover is the Lord Jesus Christ. The obedient ear is the woman going her way to testify to her city about the Lord Jesus Christ, and look at the result. Because of a wise reprover upon an obedient ear. We can't be the obedient ear when we're being the wise reprover. But if we're in the presence of a wise reprover, I hope we'll be the obedient ear. Because when the two come together, it's a beautiful thing. Proverbs chapter 25 and verse 12 puts it this way, as an earring of gold and an ornament of fine gold so is a wise reprover upon an obedient ear. And so when we share the truth, and we share it wisely, and the Lord has prepared a hearer that's an obedient ear, there's a product that is like fine gold, an ornament of fine gold. It's beautiful. And it's beautiful when it happens. Listening to the young man from Auburn University that's here with us. He was telling me a couple of days ago about an encounter regarding Acts 8.37 and some of the other problems in Bible versions and how a man was converted in front of his eyes to the truth of the King James Bible. And you know the excitement that he had telling it and you know the excitement I had hearing it is an ornament of fine gold. And there was much gold at the city of Sychar and at Jacob's well when the the men of that city came out to see the Lord Jesus Christ. Which one do you want to be? That is the correct answer. We want to be both. We want to be an obedient ear when someone is wisely reproving us, and we want to be a wise reprover to others and trust the Lord for the results of obedient ears, for the ornament of gold. Because it's a wonderful thing. And thus, in verse 36, he that reapeth receiveth wages... And gathereth fruit unto life eternal. It's a wonderful thing to see souls converted on their way to heaven. That both he that soweth and he that reapeth may rejoice together. It was a great work by the apostles. When Paul came to Jerusalem, and you read in Galatians chapter 2 and Acts a couple of chapters about the apostles getting together, it was a great event. 
Paul's able to tell them what great things the Lord had done through him with Gentiles. It's recorded in Acts 15 as well at the Council of Jerusalem. And yet they're able to tell Paul, look at how many thousands believe here. You know, we're, among, we're working with the Jews, you're working with the Gentiles. Thank you, Lord, for the increase. So Paul sowed, he gave seed, he put seed in the ground in the way of gospel preaching. And then Apollos came along after Aquila and Priscilla were wise reprovers upon an obedient ear of Apollos. He goes into Achaia and comes to the city of Corinth and does great things there with those that Paul had started. And it's, and it's wonderful to read this in the Bible and see the fulfillment of these verses right here. Let's have in our church those that sow, those that reap. Let's have wise reprovers. Let's have obedient ears. And that the Lord will bless us with conversions. Verse 40. Well, verse 39 tells us that the city believed on him for the saying of the woman. Many of them. Because that was enough. She was a wise reprover. Because she did not say, I just met a man that told me he was the Christ. She said, I just met a man that told me all things ever I did. And they believed because of that word. It's going to be stated twice in this passage. And twice we know that she didn't say, he told me he was the Christ. She gave evidence for that fact. But we come now to verse 40. So when the Samaritans were come unto him, they besought him that he would tarry with them. And he abode there two days. So, when the Samaritans were coming to him, that so is describing a reason why they came, because they were believers, from verse 39. What does a real believer want to do with Christ? He wants more of him. They believed on him in verse 39, but they didn't keep watching the football game. They believed on him in verse 39, but they didn't go golfing. They believed on him in verse 39, but they left their crafts, their trade. Let me use Jesus' words from Matthew 22. Their farm, their business, and their merchandise. They left their junk to go for more. And so it tells us that. So when the Samaritans were coming to him, they besought him that he would tarry with them. Why? Did they beseech Jesus to tarry with them? Because they believed, and believers want more. It is their glory to search out a thing and to get even more of it. That verse that we heard this morning from our young brother, 111 and verse 2, I want to read it again to us. I want to read it again to me. Verse 2, The works of the Lord are great, sought out of all them that have pleasure therein. If you have pleasure in the Lord Jesus Christ, then you will seek out opportunities to hear more about him, to read about him, to listen to singing and praise about him. That's just the way it is. And if you don't, we know something about you. You're not a real believer in Jesus Christ. A real believer in Jesus Christ wants more like these Samaritans. Right. And so we have that in verse 40. They besought him, and Jesus heeded their request, which tells us a great deal about these Samaritans. They were sincere believers because we have already learned, and I am not short on reminding you of what we read in the last three verses of John chapter 2, that Jesus did not commit himself to some believers because he knew what was in every man's heart, and some are, many, most, are not real believers, even though the Holy Ghost would say they believed. 
Their belief was an intellectual assent to the fact that they had just seen supernatural miracles and this man might be a prophet. This man might be the Christ. This man might be the one that God was promising to send to our nation. Ho-hum, I'm going to go back to work. So Jesus did not commit himself to them. John 2, the last three verses. But Jesus did commit himself to the woman of Samaria and to these citizens of Sychar for two whole days. Thank you, Lord. For 13 Jews to stay with these Samaritans, 13 Jews at least, 12 apostles and one Lord Jesus Christ, for 13 Jews to stay with these Samaritans for two days was highly unusual. Mm -hmm. And so the Lord did it anyway. Whether it's unusual or not, and I hope that we'll be willing to do unusual things to try to convert someone. Compare this to the treatment of the Jews that, Je that believed on him in John chapter 6. He drove them away with statements like this. Except ye eat my flesh and drink my blood, ye have no life in you. The apostles told him, this is a hard saying, Lord, who can hear it? He said, didn't I tell you that except a father draw them, no man can come unto me anyway? So what's the big deal? What are you worried about? Everyone that's mine is going to come to me. Even if I'm speaking things like this. Just like he's going to say to the nobleman, oh, you've got to be kidding me. You've got to see a miracle. You won't believe on me without a miracle? The man's there because his son's dying. Sometimes the Lord says things a little hard to see how we'll respond. Bring it on, Lord. Blast us with your word. You have every right to say anything you choose to say. You're able to say to the woman of Canaan, the children's bread is not fit for Gentile dogs. Did the Lord Jesus say that? Did between the apostles and the Lord Jesus, did they discourage her four different times? Four successive times? Yes. Did he have something good to say about her faith in the end? Amen. Did he heal her? Daughter? Yes, he did. How about John chapter 8? And ye shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. Free men. I love it. Free men. You know, we got we to deal with that with patriots. Free men don't like to be told they need to be made free. And Jesus told the Jews, you need to be made free in John chapter 8. So what they want to do to him, because they believed on him, but he said, you need to be made free. They wanted to kill him. Right. Unbelievable. But not here. This is different. And these are Samaritans. And you better be thankful that God saved these Samaritans. And John took such pains to elaborate their conversion, because we're worse. Right. We're far off. Amen. Listen, our parents didn't even have a religion that looked like the worship of Jehovah. So this, that's what we have from verse 40, that they wanted more of him, and they besought him that he'd tarry with them, and he stayed there two days. And verse 41 tells us many more believed because of his own word. There's a huge conversion going on in this city. There were many that were converted because of the woman's testimony. He told me everything I ever did. A supernatural display of his power. And then he preached to them, and what preaching that could have been. We are not told what he said, but if the Apostle Paul could open up the Scriptures and reveal them to Jews in Antioch of Pisidia in Acts 13, what about the Lord Jesus Christ? Did he open up the Scriptures in such a way to two on the road to Emmaus that their hearts burned within them? What could he have done for these Samaritans who knew less than the two on the road to Emmaus? How beautiful. Can you imagine him when he got to Genesis 49.10 and spoke of Shiloh coming out of Judah with a scepter and that to him would be the gathering of the people? 
Because who were the people that needed to be gathered? These Samaritans that were outside the commonwealth of Israel. This, I, I tried to imagine. When, when you read the Bible, do you imagine a little bit? I mean, I mean it, within the constraints of Scripture, Jesus preaching to these Samaritans, what text did he take? What, what text did he take on morning one at breakfast? What text? I had Genesis 49.10. That the scepter shall not depart from Judah. So that reminded them that the Messiah had to be a Jew. Reminded them that. Had to be a Jew, and that to him he would gather the people, meaning all the people. And, and, and the Lord had so many p- possible passages out of the Old Testament for the conversion of the Gentiles. But as you read these things, you just want to rejoice. Many of us have rejoiced in Acts 13 at Paul's first recorded sermon in that synagogue of Antioch of Pisidia, across the Mediterranean from Antioch of Syria. And we want to rejoice here just thinking about what the Lord taught them. Verse 42, these many more that believed because of his own word looked up the woman. It wasn't a huge city. All you have to do is read a little bit about those cities, and they weren't huge. And said unto the woman, they looked her up and said, now we believe. You know, you're responsible, but now we believe not because of what you said, but because of what we heard him say. You got us out there. You're the first one that he chose to speak to, but... Now we believe not because of thy saying, and thank you for telling us about it, for we have heard him ourselves and know that this is indeed the Christ, the Savior of the world. This Jew, this Jewish man, is indeed the Messiah that Moses spoke of in the first five books of the Bible. We believe on him, and he is the Savior of the world. He's the Savior of his people. What would Jesus have taught them about redemption? Would he have taught them an unlimited atonement? A universal redemption? Or would he have taught them that I was named Jesus because I'm going to save my people, his people, God's people, from their sins? He would have taught them exactly what we read in the rest of Scripture. It wouldn't have been anything different. And so the word world here is being used by them to describe Jews and Gentiles, elect Jews and Gentiles, in the world. He's the Savior of elect Jews and Gentiles in the world. Because we know that from the rest of Scripture, of what Jesus taught himself, that he would lose none of those that the Father gave him, which are the elect. And so that here they are confessing the spiritual truth that Jesus of Nazareth was the Christ, the Messiah of God, the anointed one to save God's elect people from among the Jews and Gentiles. And amen. Before we go into verse 43, and there's many more things that could be said, but I'm trying not to say them, lest we take too long in John 4. But I do want to say this, now we believe, not because of thy saying, for we have heard him ourselves and know that this is indeed the Christ. Faith is based on knowledge. Faith is based on knowledge. It is not mere speculation or hope. And the best evidence and proof is the Bible which Paul preached. Jesus explained and taught enough with the twelve apostles as witnesses to convince these Samaritans. But they were fully convinced by his preaching that Jesus was the Christ. And that's what the apostle Paul would do. He would go into a synagogue and Acts chapter 17 tells us Paul's evangelistic methods. He did not go to the mall. He did not go to street corners. He did not go to brothels or orphanages. 
He did not feed the multitudes in order to, for an evangelistic lesson. He fed the multitudes on occasion because they were hungry after listening to his preaching for many hours in the gospel accounts. Paul would go into a synagogue and from the scriptures would open and allege that Jesus of Nazareth was the Christ in fulfillment of the Jewish prophecies. Those are, those are rhetorical terms of legal persuasion is what the Apostle Paul would do. And Acts chapter 17 is full of that. It starts with Paul, like an attorney, opening and alleging, stating his case and his evidence as to why Jesus of Nazareth was the Christ. That's how Paul would do it. That's what preaching is. It's not getting Tim Tebow to tell you how Jesus helped him fail in the NFL. It is nothing like that. It is opening and alleging from the Bible with argument upon argument that Jesus of Nazareth fulfills the prophecies of the Messiah. And then, you know, Paul worked his way through when the synagogue was done. He went into the marketplace where the Athenians liked to stand around and hear new things because they always wanted to be educated in new ideas. And so Paul preached them about the resurrection and they took him to Mars Hill where the philosophers gathered and he preached to them there that God is a spirit. Not in these words, but he said, God that made the heavens and the earth and all that in them is does not have blood and flesh to dwell in a physical temple. He, right. he actually did preach God is a spirit in Acts 17. And so it is knowledge. It is knowledge. It is argument based upon argument that is given in order to build a person's faith. Faith that is built on a feeling is not faith. Faith that is on hope is not faith. Faith that is on speculation is not faith. Faith is built on knowledge and information and proof and argumentation that the prophesied Messiah of the Old Testament is fulfilled in Jesus Christ of Nazareth. And so Jesus did it that way. Paul did it that way. That's the way we're supposed to do it. We're supposed to preach the word and noble hearers will receive that word with all readiness of mind they want to believe it. They start out believing it. And they go check out the scriptures. They'll never be able to check out the scriptures like the minister that preached it, but at least they can check out to see if the verses that were used are actually there and if they give some semblance to supporting the point that was made. Right. And that's what the Bereans did. And that's what all men should do. But let's, let's remind ourselves about the woman of Samaria, the woman of Sychar, the, the city of Samaria. Jesus must needs go through Samaria on his way to Galilee, we learned in the first part of this chapter in verse 3. Jesus is the good shepherd and finds one sheep, one coin, one prodigal, however you want to describe it. And we want to remember that. Jesus seeks souls one at a time. He knows us one at a time. He knows our names one at a time. He knows our individual names. Our individual names are written in the Lamb's book of life. Our names are inscribed in the palms of his hands. He knows us. He chose us by name. He chose us individually. God did before the foundation of the world in Christ Jesus. And so we see this being fulfilled in chapter 3 with Jesus meeting with Nicodemus, one man, and taking time with one man. In John 4, it's one woman to start with. And let's remember that. Jesus is the good shepherd and finds one sheep, the woman of Sychar. One coin, the woman of Sychar, 
or Zacchaeus or the Philippian jailer, whoever you want it to be. Let me give you a list in just a moment. And one prodigal. Remember, the God of heaven saved Rahab out of the city of Jericho that fell flat to the ground and out of the Canaanites that were to be annihilated. In his genealogy are listed the sinners Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, and Bathsheba. He healed a faithful woman with an issue of blood 12 years that was not made better by the physicians. He cast seven devils out of a woman named Mary Magdalene and loved her. He discouraged a Canaanite woman before finally delivering her daughter, as I mentioned moments ago. He forgave a sinful woman and defended her against Simon the Pharisee at dinner. He found and saved the wild Gadarene possessed and destroyed by devils. He twice sought out the man born blind and gave him both sight the first time and faith the second time. Lord, who is he that he might believe? Because I need the proof. He that speaketh unto thee is he. In John chapter 9. He kindly healed a single leper in the midst of a crowd by touching him. Praise the Lord. He found, saved, and honored a short and sinful publican named Zacchaeus. He carried a poor beggar named Lazarus into the presence of God in heaven. He promised the thief on the cross eternal life, though only getting, getting serious at death. He sent Philip the evangelist to find and baptize the eunuch in the desert. He sent Peter to teach and baptize Cornelius, the Gentile, and his household. He met Saul of Tarsus on the road to Damascus to convert him and to ordain him. We don't read about any of the other in the company of Saul being converted. He sent Saul, Paul to find, teach, and baptize the Philippian jailer and his family. These are individuals in the Bible named sometimes, described sometimes by their location, by their profession, by their situation, that the Lord Jesus Christ came after either himself personally or he sent his apostles after. And so we see the love of souls, the love of individual souls given by the good shepherd, the great shepherd of the sheep, our Lord Jesus Christ. The first thing we want to appreciate about that fact is there is every reason for you to believe, for you to trust, love, and serve the Lord Jesus Christ. He seeks each of us individually. Because we're part of a church that loves him doesn't comfort us because we want to love him individually. He comes after each of us individually. And so the lesson of a love of a soul shown by Jesus, practiced by the apostles, shown here toward the woman of Sychar, let us rejoice, you individually, by name, in your in your unique set of circumstances, that God came after you. At any point in the process, if he'd have let you go, you would have run away from him and righteousness. Right. But he didn't let you do that. Amen. He came after you and picked you up and carried you as he describes carrying the lost sheep. Lays them on his shoulder and brings them back and celebrates, and heaven celebrates, over one sinner that repents. That's the first lesson we've got to learn is, the Lord Jesus Christ loved even me. The Lord Jesus Christ came after me. The Lord Jesus Christ prepared me. God ordained me to eternal life before the world began, or I would have never believed the gospel. Jesus Christ comes to me and convicts me. 
When Jesus Christ convicts you, that is one of the most wonderful tokens of love for which you should appreciate that he's convicting you. Run with that conviction. Embrace that conviction. Thank him for it. He's dealing with you individually when he's talking to you on the inside by his spirit. When you read something in the word of God and it grabs you, grips you, provokes you like it never has before. That's God, the Holy Spirit, dealing with you individually. You say, well, couldn't there be someone else on the other side of the world being blessed by that same passage of Scripture? Yes! Because He's divisible. He's able to come to each of us that way. First, by the, by the dealings of Jesus with the woman of Sychar, let's appreciate and be thankful, rejoice and give thanks that He saved even you. Individually considered. Second, Let's have a love for souls like the Lord Jesus Christ did and like his apostles were taught to have it. Do you have the love for souls that Jesus had in the individual examples I just gave you? Individual souls. One soul at a time. You've been taught it for years. Will you pursue one soul, though it may cost you effort, time, and money? One soul. When you detect that there might be a soul that wants to serve God more perfectly, that wants to walk with God and serve Jesus Christ, what do you do about it? Are you like Jesus and his apostles? Will you gently pursue a sinner? Did you see how gentle the Lord Jesus Christ was? Progressing very slowly. Paul was different on Mars Hill because philosophers don't deserve gentility. Not Greek philosophers. They deserve to be told exactly what they were told. But Jesus with the woman of Samaria went slowly, gently. He did not condemn her. He did not condemn her for her fornication. He didn't jump on her for that. He progressed slowly with her and brought her to the place where Messiah was under consideration. You know, we understand from the the rest of the Bible that that woman would have repented of her sins before this two days was over. And so would the rest of the city have repented of their sins because that's what it means to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ in a way that is acceptable to Him. Will you overlook some of the faults of those that you meet until they are converted and stronger? You're in this church because we've overlooked your faults. We have to do it all the time. Can you overlook the faults of others in order to condescend to men of low estate and to pursue them for the conversion of their souls? This is New Testament religion. New Testament religion is not coming in here and and hearing about election and predestination and going home and thinking that you believe the truth. If you believe the truth of the Lord Jesus Christ, you want to embrace Him, hear more about Him, and tell about Him to others. Will another soul be important enough for you to lose some of life's pleasures? That's the second lesson we want to learn from looking at Jesus and the woman of Samaria. How, does it have, how do we compare in our love of souls? Third, despise the evil excuses that many use to never have any fruit unto eternal life, as verse 36 describes. I don't want to get involved. Why don't you want to get involved? you selfish murderer. Why don't you want to get involved? Why did Jesus get involved? 
and a bunch of Samaritans. Why? Why did Philip get involved with a eunuch from Ethiopia? I'll leave the matter to others. Why will you leave it to others, you lazy sloth? Why will you leave it to others? Jesus could have said, I'll leave it to others. I know what I'm going to do with my apostles. I'm going to commission them to start in Jerusalem and then spread out to Judea and then spread out to Samaria. I'll just go on to Galilee because I know the apostles are going to pick up the loose ends here in Samaria in a few years. I don't know what to say or how to help. Well, why are you so ignorant? For you to say that means you haven't learned because it doesn't take much. Look at how the Lord Jesus Christ is dealing at some of the simplest levels with this woman of Samaria. Look at Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch. You can't explain Isaiah 53 to someone? Look at Peter with Cornelius. What did Peter explain to Cornelius? Jesus was the Christ, and without faith in him, there's no evidence of eternal life. It doesn't take that much knowledge. You've heard plenty, but are you putting it into practice? I have my own family to take care of. whoop de doo So did Peter. Why is he out preaching? I'll pray for them. So, where does it tell you to pray for them? The fruit of the righteous is a tree of life, and he that winneth souls is wise. Not he that prays for souls. He that winneth souls is wise. Old Testament, Solomon, Proverbs, simple. It's something that should provoke us Because as we pass on from John chapter 4 about the woman of Sychar, I want us to be gripped by Jesus Christ's personal dealings with her as he has dealt with each of us, how we should be like that and we shouldn't have the excuses that so many make not to share the truth with others. Verse 43, Now after two days he departed thence and went into Galilee. Jesus spent two days with the residents of Sychar, preaching to them and converting them because many more believed than had believed. He's on his way to Galilee. There's the district called Judea that had Jerusalem in it. Then there's the district of Samaria directly north of it. And then north of that was the district of Galilee, which was the countryside around the Sea of Galilee. It was probably 1,500 square miles of countryside around this little Sea of Galilee that was 13 miles long and 8 miles wide. Galilee had in it the cities and towns called Nazareth. These are ones listed in the Bible. There were many more. Nazareth, Cana, Magdala, Capernaum, Chorazin, Bethsaida. Galilee was a district or a region, not a city. Keep that in mind so that it can refer to an area formally distinct from the cities, possibly. It's an area, it's a district of territory encompassing cities. By John's next explanation, we're going to understand that Jesus did not return to Nazareth where he didn't have any respect because that was his hometown. So verse 43 tells us, after two days, he departed thence and went into Galilee. Verse 44, kind of odd here, but here's the explanation. Jesus himself testified that a prophet hath no honor in his own country. Then why is he returning to his own country? Does verse 44 mean that he wasn't getting the respect due him in Judea? No. 
He was getting a lot of following in Judea. In fact, his ministry was so successful in Judea, he had to leave it for fear of arousing the Jews before the time of his crucifixion because that's what we learn in the first three verses of John 4. So he's not leaving Judea. Is he leaving Samaria because he, wasn't, he didn't have a good reception and he didn't get any honor? No, it's in his own country that a man doesn't get honor. So what is the verse saying? He went back to Galilee exclusive of Nazareth. Because what city could he not get honor in? His hometown. Where did he make this statement? In his hometown of Nazareth. Because when you grow up with someone, you don't have the respect for them as if they came from another city or another place. And so in Nazareth, when he opened up the scriptures of Isaiah 61 in the synagogue, read to them Isaiah 61 in Luke 4, you read it, and then he sat down and he said, this day are these scriptures fulfilled in your midst. What was their response? Is not this Joseph's son? There we, unbelievable. Unbelievable. Isn't this Joseph's son? Physician, heal thyself. If you want us to believe on you, why don't you pull some of the miracles you've done at Capernaum? And then Jesus said, I'm not going to do any more miracles here than Elisha did for lepers in Israel. He cured a Syrian. And they led him to a brow of a hill to kill him in his hometown. So we understand by what follows here is that Jesus went to Cana of Galilee, then he went to Capernaum, and eventually he'll come back to Nazareth. In Luke 4 that you read, between his baptism and between what you read in Nazareth, there's a lot of activity. And do you know who gave it to us? John. Because Luke 4 doesn't get cranking and Matthew 4 doesn't get cranking until John's in prison. And we're already told in the last part of John 3 that John isn't in prison yet. These are activities that Jesus had before he went to his hometown of Nazareth. He knew he wasn't going to be received there. So instead he went to Cana, second miracle. See, all those miracles that you read about in Galilee did not occur in Nazareth. They didn't occur in Capernaum. Miracles haven't been done in Capernaum yet because this is the second miracle that we're about to read about in Galilee. That kind of stuff is not all that important, but you got to understand what verse 44 is there for because in his hometown he wasn't respected. But as soon as he got to Galilee in the countryside, did the Galileans receive him? We're going to read that he, they did. Verse 45. What does verse 44 mean? A prophet hath no honor in his own country. In your hometown where people have seen you grow up, they don't have the respect for you that they do in other places. That's what it means. Verse 45. Then when he was come into Galilee, that's a region, that's a district, that's a countryside around the Sea of Galilee, 1,500 square miles. The Galileans received him, having seen all the things that he did at Jerusalem. He hadn't done miracles yet in Galilee except turning the water into wine at Cana of Galilee that's recorded in this gospel in John chapter 2. Having seen all the things they did at Jerusalem at the feast, for they also went unto the feast. These Galileans were committed followers of Jehovah and Moses' system of religion because it required that those adult males be at three feasts a year and they had been there at Jerusalem to see the miracles that he did. Because we're told in verse 23 of John chapter 2, Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover, in the feast day, many believed in his name when they saw the miracles which he did. So we're told about the miracles that he did in Judea, the miracles he did in Jerusalem, 
that these Galileans had seen, but they've come home 70 miles to be in the countryside around the Sea of Galilee, but now Jesus is arriving there. And that brings us to verse 45. When he was coming to Galilee, the Galileans received him because they had seen the miracles he did at Passover in Jerusalem, and that's the feast that's mentioned there. Verse 46, so Jesus came again into Cana of Galilee. He didn't go to his hometown because of verse 44, that a prophet is not without honor save in his hometown, save in his own, save in his own country or in his own city. If you go look at the other occurrences of this particular statement, it says city, his own city. And Nazareth was his own city. Verse 46, so Jesus came again into Cana of Galilee where he made the water wine, which was recorded by this writer in John chapter 2. Period. And there was a certain nobleman whose son was sick at Capernaum. That's another city of Galilee. This nobleman could have been attached to Herod Antipas, the Tetrarch of Galilee. We don't know. The Bible doesn't tell us, so we don't care. We know that there was a steward of Herod named Cusa, whose wife followed Jesus. We know that there was a Menaean that was brought up with Herod the Tetrarch that was one of the preachers in Antioch of Syria where Paul's home church was. These things are mentioned to us in the Bible. Right. You know, there's a little list of teachers made in Acts chapter 13, verse 1, and one of them's name is Menaean, who was brought up with Herod the Tetrarch. And so men get excited to find a connection like that and can start to weave stories, but I don't, I'm not a good storyteller. All I know is that he was a nobleman. I don't know if he was connected to Herod Antipas or not, and I don't care. I know that he was elevated above the average citizenship, and he was humble enough to come to the Lord Jesus Christ because he loved his son, and he ended up being a believer on Jesus the Christ. There's no way to prove any of these presumptions or connections, and it doesn't matter. What we know is a father cared for a sick son and went to the only one that could help. Though he was a nobleman, he could not buy the health of his own sick son. And you know, sometimes we get ourselves into predicaments of things we can't do. It's out of our control. It's out of our reach. And so there's only one person we should go to, and it's the one the nobleman went to. Amen. He went to the Lord Jesus Christ. The Lord Jesus Christ who deals with his sheep individually and takes care of them individually and has power to speak the word about any need in any soul at any time of any kind. Amen. That I do know. Though he was a nobleman, he humbled himself to beg help of Jesus the Nazarene. What could we say about Jesus the Nazarene if you were looking from the outside with a disrespectful or critical attitude. He was a homeless man, a homeless Jew wandering around. I mean, if you didn't, if you didn't look beyond the surface and see the preaching and see the power and see the miracles and know the scriptures, this man knew something. He knew from what had happened in Jerusalem that Jesus was capable of healing. Where do you go for your children? You are a pitiful parent comparatively to the Lord Jesus Christ. We can't even come close to the Lord Jesus Christ in caring for what you think are your children when they're all the Lord's children. And so we turn them over to him and we seek his face 
And he's able to do for them what he did for the son of the nobleman. Verse 47. When he heard that Jesus was come out of Galilee, come out of Judea into Galilee, he went unto him. So he goes after the Lord Jesus Christ. It's 15 miles from Capernaum to Cana. It's through a mountain range. They're going to talk about going down, going up, and it's in altitude because Cana was high in altitude. And if you look at a map, a topographical map that shows the mountains surrounding the area, there's beautiful pictures on the internet. You don't need to take a trip to the Holy Land. All you got to do is take a trip to Google. Take a trip to Holy Google, and I certainly mean that with no regard for the word holy, uh, and type in Galilee. I'm, truly, there's beautiful countryside around the Sea of Galilee. 13 miles long, 8 miles wide, 1,500 square miles of Galilee, hilly regions going up into some pretty significant peaks. And Cana was one of those. And it was 15 miles by foot or horse or whatever he might have had through mountains to get to the Lord Jesus Christ. And we're reading about that in verse 47. When he heard. You know, what if he hadn't heard? When we have an opportunity, let's speak. When we have an opportunity, that doesn't mean we go at work and leave tracks on everybody's desk while they're away at lunch. <laughs> when we're in a restaurant, we don't have to leave a track to every single person that waits on us. But boy, if that waitress or waiter gives us any indication at all that they might be interested in spiritual things, it's a wonderful opportunity to meet a stranger and talk to them. When he heard that Jesus was come out of Judea into Galilee, somebody was talking, he went unto him. And besought him that he would come down, come down from Cana to Capernaum, 15 miles distance, but some height in altitude, and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. Now, some like to point out here that the centurion was a little bit better in his faith. Do you remember the centurion? Lord, I'm not worthy to have you under my roof. I know that you're a man under authority. I'm a man under authority. I can tell this man go, and he goes, and do, and he does. And So why don't you just speak the word, and my son will be healed. And that's true. But I'm not going to pick on this nobleman. Um, I read too much picking on the nobleman over the last week uh, in comparison to the centurion, because Jesus does not rebuke this man. He gives a warning, and we got to be careful when we read some of the warnings and responses of the Lord Jesus Christ, we don't know how much it's directed to the one person. Because notice, except ye see signs and wonders, ye will not believe. That's plural, because the Jews were always looking for a sign. They always wanted a sign. And so Jesus, using the opportunity of the individual nobleman, gives a warning to the nation why are you always looking for miracles? There should be something else that should convince you that I'm the Messiah. And what would it be? Scripture and his person. Scripture and his person. Do you believe on Jesus Christ because he turned the lad's lunch into enough food to feed 5,000? Or do you believe on Jesus Christ because Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15 said that a woman in time would give birth to a son that would bruise the serpent's head? And we, we connect those kind of things together. And that's what real preaching was. You know, in, in five minutes, the apostles Peter or Paul could get rid of all the miracles of Jesus when they met someone like Cornelius by saying, 
I'm sure that you've heard that Jesus of Nazareth went about doing good in, in all of Galilee and Judea and Samaria and performing mighty signs and wonders, right? Okay, well, let's get to something important now. And what would they get to? The scriptures being fulfilled by Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Amen. He went unto him. Oh, let's go to the Lord Jesus Christ when we have need. Let's go to the Lord Jesus Christ because we have need. We have need for our souls. We have need for our lives. We have need for our families. We have need for our church. And we have need for this nation. And he is the prince of the kings of the earth. And in the second assembly, we are going to pray for our nation. We're not going to pray for anything else. We're going to pray for our nation in the second service. And I hope that there are some men that want to get up and give some entreaties and supplications and intercessions and giving of thanks for our nation. Because right here, we're dealing with the king of nations. Verse 48, Then said Jesus unto him, Except ye see signs and wonders, ye will not believe. He used that as a gentle rebuke, not so gentle, to warn them that just believing on him for his miracles was not good enough. Remember, it was men believing on him for his miracles in John chapter 2 that he would not commit himself to. There's another level of belief, personally embracing him as the Savior of the world, as the Samaritans did just a few verses earlier, and seeing the fulfillment of scriptures of God, that he is the wonderful, that he is Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace, the fulfillment of all that by his person, his character, his work, his relationship with the Father, all the things that he appealed to other than his miracles. When we get to John chapter 10, he is going to be asking men to believe on him for his relationship with the Father. And if he said, if you can't pull it off, then believe on me for the work's sakes. I just want to put it in its order as to why he would say this. And he doesn't continue with his rebuke. He just gets that out there. Except ye see signs and wonders, ye will not believe. But we know from the rest of the Gospels and from Paul in 1 Corinthians that the Greeks seek after wisdom, but the Jews wanted signs. Remember they came to Jesus at the end of his life on earth and said, show us a sign. And he said, what are you talking about? An adulterous and an evil generation wants a sign. And the only sign that's going to be given to it is the sign of Jonah. Kill me, I'll be in the ground three days and three nights and I'll come up. Is that a good enough sign? But no other signs except the 18,944 that I've done over the last three and a half years that are well documented and recorded by eyewitness observers. I just want to put this into place. We've never seen a miracle of Jesus, but we believe on him without them. Do you know what Jesus said about a man that's able to believe on him without seeing something like that? Better than Thomas. John chapter 20 and verse 29. Blessed are they that believe without seeing. Verse 49. The nobleman saith unto him, Sir, come down ere my child die. Come before my child's dead. I don't know what this warning is that you're making. I didn't come here to cause any trouble. I believe on you. I've come 15 miles after I heard that you've come out of Judea into Galilee because I believe that you can heal my son. Come down and heal my son before he's dead. I love the response. Practical. 
very practical. When we go to the Lord, we can be practical and lay before Him the needs of our heart, the needs of our lives, and He will hear. Jesus saith unto him, Go thy way. Notice now he's using singular pronouns for him, as opposed to the warning in verse 48. He says, Go thy way, thy son liveth. He's alive and doing well. All the vital signs are strong. He is recovered. He's healed. And the man believed the word that Jesus had spoken unto him. The levels of belief. The man believed a little, because as soon as he heard Jesus was coming, i got to go see Jesus. Jesus says, Go thy way, thy son liveth. I don't have to go there. I haven't been there. I've never met your son. I haven't seen the bed that he's lying on. I don't need any of that information or circumstantial help. Go thy way. You, You can go by yourself back home. He's all taken care of. That's the Lord Jesus Christ and the power of his word. What a word is this! Do you like it in Luke chapter 4 when the exclamation point at the end of it? What a word is this? When the Lord Jesus Christ speaks, he still speaks. He's glorified now. This was in his state of humiliation. He speaks now and he's going to bring the whole world out of their graves. Every single human being that's ever lived is going to come forth and stand before him at the great judgment seat. His voice is able to give life. His voice is able to damn to an eternity in the lake of fire. His voice is able to say, depart from me. His voice is able to say, well done, thou good and faithful servant. His voice. The man believed the word that Jesus had spoken unto him, and he went his way. And as he was now going down, down in altitude, his servants met him and told him, saying, thy son liveth. The servants had come for him. The son was doing better. The fever had left him. He was recovered. He was making amends. And so the servants met him on the road. Who arranged all of that? The God of heaven. The Lord Jesus Christ looked at that man. The man's last words were, Sir, come down ere my child die. I don't want to make him wait 15 miles. I'll send the servants. Let's get this over with now and send the servants to meet him on the way back home so that he can hear that his son's doing well. Verse 52, and Sayer, you got me all worked up with Psalm 111 and verse 2. Where are you sitting, young man? With that Psalm 111 verse 2, that those who take pleasure in the works of God seek them out. And this man wanted to know exactly the timing of when his son was healed. Do you love the details of God's word? I hope you love the details of God's word. Psalm 111 and verse 2 told us to love the details. This nobleman shows us what the details are, the fulfilled prophecies that we get excited about in our church because they are faith builders. They build our faith. Then inquired he of them, the nobleman is asking his servants the hour when his son began to amend. And they said unto him, Yesterday at the seventh hour, the fever left him. So the father knew that it was the same hour, at the same hour in which Jesus said unto him, Thy son liveth, and himself believed, and his whole house. He believed a little to go to Jesus. He believed the word of Jesus. I don't need to go to your house. Your son's fine. And then he finds out that it's the same hour that Jesus said that, that his son was fine. He believes, and his house believes, his family believes. They're converted by the power of the Lord Jesus Christ and this manifestation to this family. This is again the second miracle that Jesus did 
when he was come out of Judea into Galilee. This is again the second trip Jesus made from Judea into Galilee. If you've been paying attention in John, we met Jesus at the Jordan in Judea. He went into Galilee. He turned the water into wine. He came back for the Passover. He met Nicodemus. He went back into Galilee. This is again the second trip, a second miracle at Cana. And then he will begin visiting the other cities of Galilee and performing the miracles that you read about in Luke chapter 4 last evening. Oh, thank you, Heavenly Father, for putting in the Bible such detailed records of your Son. Do you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ this morning? We can't see the miracles. We don't have a son sick in bed, and we go 15 miles and come part of the way back after hearing the word of Jesus and find him fully recovered, and the fever has left him. But has the Lord Jesus Christ done anything else for you in your life? Many times. Many, many times. Has it changed your life? When we read about these believers, we want to look at belief in the way the Bible exalts belief, and that is faith that changes lives. We want changed lives that show our faith is real. Faith without works is dead. Faith without works is devilish. Faith without works is vain. It's nothing. We want to have changed lives because of our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Is it changing your life? Is the Son of God changing your life, changing your speech habits, changing your thought patterns, changing your conduct, what you do, what you don't do? Lord, make your Son even more real to us, that we will progress from faith to faith to faith, as from glory to glory, according to Romans 1 and 2 Corinthians chapter 3. Amen.